This podcast is produced by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society. CDSS provides programs and resources like this podcast that support people in building and sustaining vibrant communities through participatory dance, music, and song. Want to support this podcast and our other work? Visit cdss.org to donate or become a member today. One and a half around. Now below one couple and four with six. Look around to the right when you balance. Look around to your right and you balance once again. Swing your partner. Hey there, I'm Mary Wesley, and this is From the Mic, a podcast about North American social dance calling. Nicely done. Through conversations with callers across the continent, we'll explore the world of square, contra, and community dance callers. Why do they do it? How did they learn? What's their role on stage and off in shaping our dance communities? What can they tell us about the corner of the dance world that they know and love the best? Each episode, we'll talk to a different caller, but they all have something in common, a spark, a desire to lead, to share joy, to invite movement, to stand in that special place between the band and a room full of dancers or people who don't yet know that they're dancers. And from the mic, say, find a partner. Let's dance. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to From the Mic. My guest today is a dance caller, musician, singer, and scholar who makes her home in Nashville, Tennessee. It's Susan Kevra. Dancers on both sides of the Atlantic appreciate Susan's diverse repertoire of singing squares, Western patter calls, Contra, and English country dances. She's noted for her warmth, clear teaching, and lovely voice. Susan Kevra burst onto the contra dance scene in the early 1990s, quickly emerging from the rich dance soil of the Pioneer Valley in Western Massachusetts as one of the most in-demand dance callers in the country. Her innate musicality pushed her towards square dance calling, allowing her to feature her beautiful voice in singing squares, and her spot-on rhythm in southern and western squares. She's also taught English country dancing since the mid-90s. Susan is a member of the recently hatched English country dance band Constellation with Rachel Bell and on piano either Dave Wiesler or Jacqueline Schwab, who also perform ball folk and French cafe music. When not on stage at dance events, Susan is a professor of French and American studies at Vanderbilt University, where she teaches a class called American Social History Through Dance. It was such a pleasure to catch up with Susan. Here she is. Hello, Susan Kepra. It's so nice to see you. Welcome to From the Mic. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to be here, Mary. It's great to see you too. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm really happy that we're getting to catch up like this. You know, like many caller caller friends, we cross paths now and then and have gotten to have some lovely connections and conversations, but I'm excited to um to have a little bit longer to mm-hmm. to chat and learn a little bit more about your caller story. 
I also know that you are a dance historian and scholar in many ways. And so I'm excited to hear that that perspective from you as well. Where are you speaking to us from today? I am in Nashville, Tennessee. Been here for 21 years and I used to be where you said I used to live in Vermont. Um, Vermont. France. And then I thought, where can I move to that would be as different as possible from those two places? And I thought, well, Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> um, truth be told, I met a guitar player and fell in love and he coaxed me down here. And, and now I've lived in Nashville longer than I lived anywhere. Just crazy. Wow. Yeah. Well, a good reason to move to mm-hmm. Nashville, I would say. Yeah. yeah. We're lucky to have you. Well, I often start at kind of at the beginning. So you said you you used to live here in Vermont and um, that's maybe where your story with dancing and and calling begins. So would you just maybe tell us a little bit about how you got into this scene? Yeah. Um, My twin sister, Karen, was involved in playing flute for contra dances in New Jersey. Um, and she actually dragged me, and I almost mean that literally, uh, to my first dance. And I I stood in the back petrified and thought, this is just the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Get me out of here. Um, and so I don't even think I went in the first time, but I did try a second time. Um, and it was... I, I hope the Middlebury language police are not listening in on this podcast uh, because I was at <laughs> I was at Middlebury for a summer um, in oh my goodness this was during my master's degree program so that was like 1988 I think um, so I was in, in I was in Middlebury for the summer and I was dutifully studying French and had signed the document to say that I would only speak French during my six weeks there, but I happened to be walking down in downtown Middlebury one night and I heard fiddle music coming from an open door and I just followed my nose and went inside and turns out that Becky Tracy was actually playing for that dance. And I think Mike Quinn was also there. And, um, and I went in and it was a tiny little dance. There weren't that many people. I didn't know that at that point I had no judgments about is this a happening scene or not. I just, I, I was just curious about it. And and I'd had that first point of connection with my sister. Um, and I decided I want to just try this out. So I went in and I danced and I had a really great time and went to a couple other dances that summer. And then when I returned to graduate school in the fall in Michigan in Ann Arbor, I discovered the Ann Arbor dance community. And for me, that was just when I think of those days now, that was my Oh, I couldn't wait to get to the dance. I I looked forward to it all week long and I didn't have a car back then. So I had to rely on people to get me to these locations. And, you know, to this day, I still think about um, the, the Webster dance, it was called, which at that point was outside of Ann Arbor and felt like it was in the country. For all I know, it may be housing developments at this point. But it felt very rural and you had to go up this creaky staircase to go to the second floor where the dance was. And it was so much fun. And I met all these great people. And um, I think my my love of square dancing, in addition to contra dancing, started there because there was this caller, Rich McMath, who used to play for the dance. And 
I I loved his vibe. I wasn't thinking at that point, I want to become a caller. I just knew that I love the scene that he created and um, and the feeling in the hall and the kinds of dances that he did. So that was really my start. And I just went to as many dances as I could locally, went to my first English country dance um, in Cleveland that somebody somebody gave me a ride to um, that Bear Necessities was playing for. So it was kind of opening this door for me to go back to the Northeast. And then I did, in fact, move to to New England to start a PhD program in, oh, was it 1990, I think? And what part of New England did you come back to? Um, I initially lived in Burlington. I got a job. I got a job working at UVM for a year. And that was after I'd finished my master's. And I wasn't sure if I was going to continue on and do any more graduate work. So I, I, I taught in the French department at the University of Vermont for a year. And all my colleagues said, you really need to get a PhD. You just, you just do it. Uh, so a year after that, I moved to Western Massachusetts and started a PhD program at UMass Amherst um, and found myself in you know, this hotbed of country dancing and great traditional music um, at the same time that I was starting a rigorous PhD program, <laughs> which ended up taking me about eight years to finish because I was being pulled in two directions. Um, I think it actually kept me sane to have that balance in my life, even if it took a very long time to finish my PhD. <laughs> so so those two directions were your your studies and the music yeah, and dance world. Exactly. Yep. Kind of yeah. And I kept, them, I kept them very separate for a while. I mean, this was before there was really much social media. Uh, maybe there wasn't even. Uh, and and in a way, I I kind of didn't want my professors and graduate students to know about it because I thought they might think I wasn't being a serious enough student. Um, which I probably wasn't <laughs> because I was spending so much time going to dances and then learning to call and playing for dances and, and whatnot. But um, eventually the word got out. And in fact, one of my professors at UMass Amherst um, started coming to dances. Uh, she, she was on my PhD committee <laughs> and she was also on the dance floor. Uh, so it was kind of a cool uh, cool overlap. And then I realized this isn't such a bad thing for the two sides of my life to, to overlap that way. <laughs> nice. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like really encouraging to hear that story of the, you came to your first dance and you weren't so sure, but even just having had, had a little touch, a little context the next time, you know, I'm just thinking of all the beginners that I've you know, taught at lessons and you just never know how it's going to go. But sometimes, you know, and you don't, it doesn't always have to be the first, the very first time that you're hook, line and sinker. Yeah. Well, clearly. Yeah. You make a good point about that, you know, the first experiences as a dancer. And I often think about how many people did we maybe lose who would have gone on to become incredible dancers or incredible callers or incredible musicians, but something happened at that night where they didn't feel, feel welcomed. That was not the case for me. I was just bringing my own issues to the table. Um, uh, but yeah, something I think about a lot uh, as a caller and as a dancer, when I go to dances that I, you know, I see newcomers and I think, 
what can I do to make this person's experience more enjoyable to, to increase the likelihood that they're going to come back? Um, it's not for everybody. Um, I'm just grateful that I didn't decide that it wasn't for me and gave it a second chance because the directions in my life would have been completely different. I would not have met my best friend nor my husband were it not for, for the dance world. Um, it's amazing. All the other people. Yeah. 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 It's a, <laughs> it's a great connector and an amazing community. Mm-hmm. Um, so then how did you start calling in the midst of all that? And I'm, I'm excited to, to talk to you because th- this, on this podcast, I mostly talk about American sort of North American social dance traditions mainly because that's what I myself am familiar with. But I, you know, I'd love to hear about any and all perspectives. I know you're involved in a lot of diff- teaching a lot of different dance forms. Um, but how did you first dip your toe into leading and teaching and calling dance? Well, I was living in Burlington. And uh, I think, again, it was my sister who said to me, you know, you're a natural teacher and you're a musician, and I think you'd be a good caller. And she was actually playing briefly for dances back then. She's she's actually an extraordinary classical flute player, um, lives in central Vermont, runs yes. a highly successful chamber music series, Capital City Concerts. And this was prior to that, where she, she just had this point in her life where she was doing like the back to the earth thing and um, and got involved in contradancing. So she was the one that kind of planted the seed for me. And while I was in Vermont, um, Dan O'Connell, if you've ever met Dan O'Connell, he might have been before your time. Yeah, was calling a lot of dances in the Burlington area and another really great caller. Um, you should try to dig him up if you can, if he's still okay. in the area. Noted, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and just a super generous guy. And I had very innocently asked him a question once at a dance about calling. And he was so great. He just said, well, you should call a dance sometime. I thought, uh, maybe. <laughs> um, but somehow he convinced me and I called a single dance at um, one of his dances. It was either in Burlington or Bristol, Vermont. Um, and it was right around this time that I, that I met my first husband, Bill Tomchak and a very established to this day, contra dance musician. And so he also was really supportive in, in, in kind of fostering my interest in calling and, you know, it ended up being a very, very nice way to be able to start calling and working with great musicians because he's a great musician and worked with, with wonderful players that sort of opened that door for me. Uh, I think my first first calling gig, um, full night, was in Northfield, Massachusetts. So Cami Kaner had a dance that he was running for years and years, and he couldn't make one of them. And I guess he had heard that I was starting to call in, so he asked me if I wanted to do it. And I said yes. And this is tied in a little bit to our conversation before about dancers who come as beginners and will they come back for me this was beginning calling and it could have stopped my career in its tracks tracks because what happened that night was I started the dance I was very well prepared for it and I did the first couple dances and felt like I was ramping up the level and was able to teach start to move towards more complicated stuff and then all of a sudden 
there were a whole bunch of people who arrived and they were in the back of the room and the, the Northfield Hall sort of had this, um, uh, it was like a like an overhang so that the back of the hall was dimly lit and I couldn't see who was there, but I just knew that there were a bunch of people that walked in and they joined on the bottom of the set and they were not understanding and it was kind of a disaster. And I remember one of the organizers came running up and she said, you know, if this is too hard for you, Michael McKernan's here and he could take over if you want. And I was this close to just saying, okay, but I didn't. And as it turned out, <laughs> the issue was that the people who joined in in the back of the hall were all Japanese exchange students who spoke no English. <laughs> so it didn't really matter who was up there. It didn't matter who was up there. Um, and somebody fortunately came up and explained the situation and and I regrouped and said, let's do a mixer. And I think I called La Bestrang. And it was fine. And the other dancers, of course, did the good thing and took the newcomers by the hand. And, and the evening was salvaged, but it really could have torpedoed. Um, but it didn't. But it's, you know, it's kind of, a, it's it's all of us have those moments of feeling very vulnerable where you get this oh, just this curveball that you could not have predicted. And, and how do you respond to that? Um, and they continue to happen. Even if you've been doing this for 30 years, they still happen. But when they happen, when you are a young caller and you're vulnerable, and I was really young. I think I was, I think I called my first dance when I was maybe 28. So um, yeah, <laughs> crazy. Yeah. And how did you go from kind of pinch hitting or getting up to call one or two dances to you? So you said you were calling a little bit when you were with Bill and, and his music was a vehicle, but where else did you want to take it? Um, well, I was fortunate that living in the Pioneer Valley, there were some opportunities for calling open mic sessions we used to have a, a dance um, right in the center of Amherst in the sweetest little space. It's a beautiful space, crummy acoustics, but beautiful setting right downtown, right downtown. And it was an open mic thing. So musicians could come and sit in. Um, and Paul Eric Smith was running that. And he was always so incredibly supportive and generous. And if I said I wanted to call a dance, he would say, call two. <laughs> If I said, I think I'm ready to do half a dance, he was like, I think you're ready to do a full evening. Um, so that was a really, really important step in giving me the confidence and um, and hearing other callers. Um, but it was actually, Cammie was the one, Cammie Kander was the one who, um, he, uh, this is the early 90s, um, had gotten married and started having children and his family moved off to the Boston area. So he had been running one of the Greenfield dances and he didn't want to do it anymore. And he asked me and Bill if we wanted to to take over doing that dance. Um, so pretty quickly, I think it was maybe less than two years after I started calling, I was doing this. I think at that point it was a twice a month dance in Greenfield. So quick growth, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, felt like high stakes situation calling at the Greenfield Grange um, and a place where people have high expectations. I think they still do. Um, but I also had opportunities to go and and dance in South Amherst and get to dance to Swallowtail and George Marshall's Calling and and all these other amazing people. And, um, and David Kaner, who 
who probably more than anyone, I think was, um, gave me opportunities and was so unbelievably supportive and a real cheerleader. Um, and it just, I think back to that period as uh, I feel sort of starry eyed when I think about it, because it felt like all of these friendships blossomed and these musical connections were made. And so Susan Conger, Fiddler, who still lives in the Pioneer Valley, Susie Secco, piano player, the three of us got together and formed a band called Suzerama. Um, and <laughs> we awesome. did a, yeah, we did a, we did a, what was it, Fifth Saturdays at the Munson Library in, in South Amherst. And it was so much fun. And I think for dancers, it was kind of this cool thing because it was three young women on stage in little black dresses um, <laughs> trying to find our way musically and calling wise, but it was, um, it was a really, really fun scene. So between that dance and the, um, the Greenfield dance that gave me a lot of opportunities to, to really, really work on my craft. Um, mm. And what did you love about it? What was so compelling? Um, trying to put my mind back, <laughs> back 30 years ago, what was so compelling about it? Um, you know, for one, it was just getting to call to really, really great music. Um, it was just that kind of magic of being able to facilitate an evening and the the challenge of all of those balls that you have to juggle as a caller and make it work. So you're, you know, you're, you're programming decisions, you're, the kind of social engineering that has to happen from the stage and um, and just feeling the sense of knowing when you have a new interest that you're excited about kind of being aware of your growth as it's going on and that generates more enthusiasm for what you're doing. It, it sort of catches fire. And um, I was just really uh, immersed in that world for, I would say five or six years of really, really working on, on my contra dance calling and, um, uh, and, and scrutinizing it, you know, I, I made a study of it. So this was back before, you know, we had our cell phones and we could easily record, uh, or video, uh, events. So I would take a tape recorder with me everywhere that I went. And I would ask callers if I could record them. And I've got probably, who knows what state they're in now, but a whole bunch of cassette tapes in my basement of people like Tony Parks, um, of Steve Zakon Anderson. Um, uh, and I would listen to those over and over again. Um, Tony's Shadrach's Delights uh, recording that he did. I listened to that in my car until the tape broke, you know, and got a second copy. And there are times even today when I hear myself calling and I realize that was completely ripping off Tony Parks and who could be a better person to rip off in terms of vocal qualities than Tony, you know? Um, and not, not just listening for, for, um, the vocal qualities, but also, uh, people's teaching and really scrutinizing how they would explain things. And then I did the same thing for my own calling and would record myself and listen to it and realize, oh, well, no wonder that dance fell apart because now that I have heard again what I said, that was completely confusing. Um, so yeah, just a really kind of analytic approach to it. Um, 
and lots and lots and lots of listening and not just contra dance callers. I, I kind of became a uh, um, obsessed with square dance calling and listening to old time square dance callers. Um, and then really, I think maybe most key for me in my development as a caller was I went to Augusta. Um, I wonder what year this was, maybe it's like 1995 or so. Um, when Larry Edelman was, he had been doing every year, a square dance callers class. And I knew I wanted to do more square dance calling. I was already doing singing squares and sort of more uh, New England style quadrilles, but I wanted to do more with it. But I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. So I took his class and it was amazing. It was just mind blowing. There were a dozen or so of us in the class. And uh, it was every day for, I don't know, four or five hours a day and then calling at the evening dances there. And Larry was really great about helping me figure out what I should be doing. You know, he said, you you think you want to do Southern squares, but you live in the Pioneer Valley and you're going for contra dancers and they don't want to do birdie, uh, birdie in the cage. You know, they, they want to do stuff that moves along. So I took this deep dive into um, uh, modern Western square dance, kind of those vintage years, like in the 1950s, and started learning those. And I still do them to this day. And it's one of the things I enjoy most about calling is, is those fast patter calls and just the, uh, the thrill of being off script. You know, contra dancing is a great entry point for becoming a caller because it's very scripted and predictable. But it was super fun to kind of take the training wheels off and start calling squares and realize that you can improvise breaks and you could really play with the dancers and, and calling squares. I mean, you, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's just completely. Yes. I'm not, so I'm nodding along and, uh -huh. and I totally, yeah, <laughs> I can totally remember that. Cause I had sort of the same progression of calling conchas first. And then there is such that moment as a contra caller when you when you realize you can bust out of this you know a a b b repetition <laughs> which is so comforting and can can do so much for the dancers and it's also just a whole other playground to go into yeah. the freedom of of squares and pattern squares and i'm also kind of enjoying a fun um full circle moment or something just hearing you talking about listening to recordings of Tony in the car because I can remember listening to you in the car and listening to your Susan Kevra's full swing <laughs> okay album singing goodbye my lady love and uh -huh. it was you know you know there's there's few like produced recordings especially of contra calling that like that I'm aware of anyway and it was um I think it was probably when I was learning to call and I I actually drove to the CDSS store which is not really a thing it was like I just went to the office because I just heard it was a, a place with a lot of resources and I bought your CD there and a bunch of books and everything so cool. um, well you know it's a million seller. I yeah. have a million of them in my cellar. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, 
If you don't have a copy, listeners, you should write to Susan. And <laughs> it's a great recording. And, and was that made during that that time when you were in the Pioneer Valley area? Yeah, it was. It was right before I left, in fact. And Pat Baker, I don't even know if his company exists anymore. He right, he he did a whole bunch of recordings for a lot of people in the Pioneer Valley. Rodney Miller and um, is it I've, is it Great Meadows music? Great Meadow music. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And so he he and his wife Betty Ann came to me and they said, you know, I think there's a place for a recording that would be more uh almost more of a pedagogical tool where people could use dance length recordings for dancing, but where they're there would also be some booklet that would come with it that you would talk about calling or might that might have um, some dances in it. So we took on that project um, and it was, it was right, I think it was right before I left um, New England for France. Um, I just attached it to a really kind of wistful time in my life because I was at this a uh, professional and emotional crossroads and wasn't sure exactly what was going to happen in my life, but I still can kind of see the studio and working with, uh, with Mary Kay, Mary Kay Brass and Stuart Kenny and, uh, and uh, Mary Lee and, and a few others and, and doing those. Um, there's not a lot of calling, as you know, in the recording, there's only like three or four dances that are called, but um, it was, it was kind of a fun, fun project to be involved in. And I hear from people a lot who say, oh, I love that recording. I, I can't listen to it anymore. I, I just kind of cringe, but you know how that is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. I hear what's wrong with it. <laughs> of course. Of course. Well, it, I, I'm definitely among them that I, I still enjoy <laughs> it and attach it to, yeah, a certain moment in my, in my journey with calling too. So <laughs> the rest of us are, are grateful that it's out there. Swing me, my lady love, goodbye. Jet star by the right hand, star right, around you go. Your partner left, oh please don't go. Now the lady star by the right hand, star right, around that square. Turn your partner by the left hand, then leave him there. And swing your corner for a long time. Swing me that corner guy, he's got a robe and I owe hurt me. Well, I yeah, I'd love to hear more about your love of square dance calling and kind of where where you've taken that. I, it's actually been I feel like it's been a little while since I've interviewed someone who's who's quite in depth with square calling. Would you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, well, you know, living in Nashville, there's actually a, a pretty established square dance scene down here. It's separate from the contra dance scene. Um, and I, I call from time to time at, there's a, a CSA here in town. They've got a little farm um, 
it's about 15 minutes from downtown Nashville, but it's it's in the country and they put on these square dances and it's one of the most fun gigs to call. You have to get adept at being able to call for dancers who don't have their left hand free for an Alaman because they've got a glass of beer in their hand. <laughs> but it's super fun and the music is always totally great. Um, these guys are, it's, it's such a cool scene. It's like they grow vegetables by day and they sit around and they play old time music when they're not involved in farming um so so that that's been fun and you know it, it's the sort of gig that translates into um just community dances and you know calling it colleges or parties and weddings and stuff like that which is always which is always fun to do um but it you know my start so my start for square dance calling really was um singing squares and that was due to ralph sweet I was so lucky Ralph. to yeah to be able to to live in in the Pioneer Valley um and be around him and he was another one of these people who was just so unbelievably generous and um generous with praise when I probably didn't deserve it like at the time I it, it, it I'm sure it made me feel really good and I thought oh I must be good I think I think there was a lot of I want to bolster this person or I want to give them feedback and confidence. Um, but he, he ran a, a singing square workshop out of his barn and a bunch of us, um, took the class, including, <laughs> including Anne Percival of Wild Asparagus and George Marshall. And I think at that point, Anne was threatening George and saying, if you don't learn to call singing squares, then I'm going to do it. Um, and I don't I know that it. on and did singing squares, but it also formed this really great, I guess, relationship between, um, between Ralph and Wild Asparagus and, um, the recording that they did of Ralph's singing squares. Um, but that, that felt like a natural bridge from going from contra dance calling to square dance calling where, you know, singing squares, you're singing a song. It, it's, it's not, of course, that simple because you're not just singing you've got to still you know shoehorn in those those calls as well um but it was really fun to do and bill tomchak um did was able to uh notate the music for all these different singing squares and come up with some cool arrangements and work with musicians who were great improvisers to do that so that was really was really really fun and it sounded like part of your interest in squares too is that you you really use your voice differently or or a lot more as mm -hmm. a square dance caller. Is that true in terms of your interest? Yeah, uh, I remember that um, that callers workshop I mentioned before, the square dance workshop that I took with Larry Edelman. That one of the things he said to me, which I'll never forget, is. Uh, he said, you know, you have a beautiful voice. It's a nice calling voice. He said, but you need to listen to Patsy Cline. <laughs> like you, you, you need a little more grit and a little, just a little more attitude in your calling. And that was really important for me oh. to hear that, that there, I think I just needed to work more on having um, a lot more uh, sort of rhythmic emphasis in my calling, um, and to just play around with it a little bit more and make it, make it pop more. Um, 
if I did unearth those cassette tapes in my basement and they were actually functioning, I'm sure if I listened to those early ones, I would hear exactly what I just described to you. And in some ways, you know, you're who you are. <laughs> you can only work with what you've got. And um, I'm never going to be Patsy Klein, but there are little elements you take from different people. You end up being sort of a composite of them. And and in essence, you're you're still yourself, but those little reflections, I think every now and then catch the light. And and if someone's listening hard enough, they might hear it. Yeah. And was part of it that you that you are a singer outside the context of calling? So do, do you feel like you had a sense of of how to use your voice and how to to like learn and hone your voice as an instrument? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, I, I took some singing lessons here in Nashville um, right before the pandemic because I felt like it's time for me to really stop messing around because I never took voice lessons ever. Uh, I sang in choirs and stuff when I was in high school and in college, but I never studied it really seriously and I felt like I should. Um, and I, I ended up only doing a few lessons and then the pandemic happened and and stopped, but it was good. It was good food for thought. Um, but now I... Um, finding myself in situations more where I, I'm singing in concert situations. Um, and that's really different from a singing square where everybody's dancing and distracted by the music. And now here they all sitting in their seats and listening to your every word and knowing if your intonation is off. Um, so, you know, if I had, if I could insert a couple more hours every day into my schedule. I would work more on my singing. Um, I should work more on my singing, but perhaps that'll come. <laughs> There's plenty of time. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's it's interesting to hear you talking about, uh, yeah, having more things to work on, because I, I was going to ask you, just compared to that, that earlier time you were describing when you were making such a study of, right. of how to call, you know, which is, I think, how you, you know, how you just get confident, how you, you reach a point where you can do it without being so analytical, or, you know, just starts to, um, to live in you. And that's such, a, it's like, I missed that time in some ways. And I sometimes wonder about how to keep learning and how to keep pushing to a, a new place with anything really. But, you know, I was just curious if you think about that too, and if there are still, still ways that you work on being a caller. Yeah. Well, I think what, what you said is spot on that. I think both of us have gone through this in our lives as callers where you feel like, okay, I've, I, I, I've made a lot of progress. And then you, you kind of feel like there's gotta be a next step that this isn't enough. And so for me, it's a question of upping the ante. So going from contras to singing squares and then singing squares to, to powder calls and then throwing English country dance teaching in along the way. Um, and then French dancing, um, teaching French dance where I don't know, maybe I'm just a little ADD, but I feel like I need more. I need those other things to keep growing and and um and to feed different interests. They're they're very related and yet they're pretty different, different skills that, that are involved in those. Um 
and and honestly right now a lot of my energy is go going into playing for dances um even more than calling i i call for our local contra dances and one night stands and stuff like that um i don't do a whole lot of contra dance calling anymore um ever since the pandemic i think the last dance weekend that i called for was Oh, the Atlanta weekend and whatever that was 2019 or I called a little bit at the flurry right before everything shut down. Um, and so primarily it's just local dances for, for countries and squares. Um, but my heart really now is in wanting to play, play clarinet for, uh, for different kinds of, of dancing and mostly for English country dancing, um, and for, for French dancing. So Rachel Bell and I, uh, do a ton of stuff together. And, and that has been super rewarding. Um, just it's super rewarding. And it's also after all these years of calling and being on stage, as you know, <laughs> um, it's, um, it's sort of a strange place to occupy because there we are all alone. We're the only ones in the room that are doing what we're doing. We're so responsible for coordinating and making everything work. And it can be exhausting, um, particularly exhausting nowadays when there's uh, so much tension between groups in the dance world. Um, one of the first gigs that I did after the pandemic was was um, dance weekends was at um, Set for Spring, the English Country Dance Weekend in Dallas, and I was hired as a musician. So Rachel Bell and Dave Weisler and I were the band. And David Millstone was calling. And I can't tell you the number of times that weekend I sat there and was like, I'm so happy that I'm in the band. <laughs> this is so easy. And he's up there sweating and having to work with, with you know, a bunch of dancers to who were still kind of rusty after the pandemic. And he had to program a million dances. It was one caller for the whole weekend. Um, and yet I say that and I've just agreed to be their caller for next year. <laughs> So I still love doing that, but um, I feel like my heart is pulling me a little bit more towards the music side of things. Yeah, it's nice to just keep finding the different layers that are there for us mm -hmm. to explore and contribute to. Oh. Mm -hmm. um, being a musician, does that inform your your calling in any way? Uh, just sort of having having that full picture experience and and knowledge and and how do you think about pairing dances and music well i, I think from a calling point of view I, th I think the caller ideally should be part of the band not to upstage the band but that that there should be an effort to think about what you're doing musically what you're doing in terms of the the rhythm of your calling where your voice sits how that meshes with the music and it's always something that for me just came naturally like i i will hear a tune i maybe never heard it before and i just know where my voice is supposed to go it's kind of like the same thing with when i play when i play clarinet for for english dancing or for contra dancing um the clarinet is not in the same key as fiddles so you have to you have to transpose. And so the chords that you see on the page are not in the key that you're playing in. And yet I feel like I play through the tune a couple times and my fingers know where to go. And I would never be able to teach a workshop in that because I just don't know how it happens. It sort of baffles me that 
my brain works that way. And it's not as if it works a hundred percent correct because there are often <laughs> wrong notes, but by and large, there's just, there's a kind of melodic and harmonic understanding that feels like it's just innate. Um, and so I think that gets conveyed in, 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 in my calling, but as far as dance choices and music choices, I think I used to be a lot more um, exacting about it when I lived in New England and would talk more with bands about, oh, this is this is the kind of tune that I want. Uh, a lot of the a lot of times the bands that play for our dances down here in Nashville um, play only reels, so there's never going to be a question about playing a jig. Um, and most of the time, the conversation I have with them is about tempo, like that's the extent of it, and. Uh, and the music is incredible because we have these these guys that are pickers on the Grand Old Opry. They're unbelievably great musicians, and anything that they're going to play is going to be great to dance to. Now it doesn't have the kind of variation that you're used to when you go to, you know, some of the bands I'm sure that you work with all the time in New England, where you really have different terrains that you explore musically. So you might have a kind of dreamy sounding jig versus a cool French Canadian, very percussive sounding thing. And it's fun to still get to do that with bands, but um, it doesn't happen that much down here. So, so down there, it's uh, more drawing from the old time music scene. Mm-hmm. Well, at Bluegrass actually, okay, even more so a lot of the bands that play there are more Bluegrass musicians. The very first dance that I went to in Nashville, um, oh, I remember walking in the hall and hearing a dobro and feeling like oh dorothy you're not in kansas anymore um and it actually made me feel really sad because i had a year before that left new england and was so used to you know the sound of new england contra dance music and it felt so foreign to me to hear a sound like that um and as it is i don't think i've heard a dobro anytime recently down here in nashville but uh, it's just, you know, it's kind of a reminder of you, you're living in a different part of the world now. Um, and that's just how it is. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one thing I'm interested in, in, and I am making an effort through this project to talk to people in a lot of different places because our, you know, these, these traditions, while at least the contra dancing is very rooted in in New England, but has has a whole you know sort of diaspora, so to speak. And and then when talking about squares, you know that draws from so many different regional traditions and styles. Um, and so when I always like to hear about people's um, dance communities where they live, um, right. and and so are there other kind of things that that you notice? regionally there in Nashville or, or, you know, the Appalachian region in general, oh. whether it's in, in the contra dance scene or, or the square dance scene. No, I mean, just to, like I was saying before the there's been this interesting funnel of musicians into our dance that, um, came primarily through one, one fiddler who, um, started bringing his friends to come and play for the dances and and a lot of them are just um they play a lot of bluegrass music um and they're really really great musicians 
Nashville is one of these cities that has this crazy burst in population. There's so many people moving here. So you get a lot of really young, talented musicians. They move, they move into East Nashville. They live in houses together. And invariably, they show up on the stage of the Nashville Country Dancers <laughs> and play for our dances. And the music is, is often just exceptional. A lot of like double fiddle sound, you know, real, real rhythm bass. There's almost, there's rarely a, a piano player at our dances. Um, but it's just great. It's really great dance music. Um, and what I, I realized the last time that I called there, one of the musicians had a recording of Full Swing. And he said to me, can we do Goodbye, My Lady Love? And I was surprised that he even knew of it and then reminded me that he, he had the recording. And I had stopped calling Singing Squares down here because I just felt like I just felt the band do what they they do. These guys mostly just, you know, they know they they're happy to just play 32 bar fiddle tunes. Um, but he specifically wanted to do it. So I said, OK, let's do it. And um, and then after we finished doing Goodbye, My Lady Love that night, uh, one of the fiddlers came over to me and he was like, do you do any more of those? Um, and I said, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, we should talk about that at some point maybe we can we can program more of them and the next dance right after goodbye by lady love they played um as one of the tunes red wing and um calling the dance to red wing and just thinking ah there's so inter so much interference in my brain because i just want to do the red wing square and then sure. after they did goodbye my not goodbye my lady love um lady be good oh my gosh so they just kept playing singing square Tunes. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think he realized that those were singing square tunes, but I was completely cracked up by it. Um, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Do you, I guess, maybe currently, but also kind of reflecting on from when you started dancing up to this point, you know, I'm curious about changes you've seen in, in dance styles. You know, I think there's a lot of talk about the separation of contras and squares and and as someone who loves both did you experience that tension you know it's I heard you mentioning Larry Edelman kind of maybe providing a little coaching or or sort of support to help you pick squares that contra dancers would like uh, but I'm just curious what your experience is around uh, around those two formations and and yeah navigating the the changes yeah. in style and preferences right you know we talk about the country dance community or the dance community uh and communities are still made up of people that don't necessarily agree on things um and i found that you know i think especially as a young caller that people were more inclined to want to give me their point of view um, and I met with a lot of resistance when I, when I had my Greenfield dance, because everybody else that called there, it was exclusively Contras. So David Kaner only called Contras and George Marshall only called Contras. And, and so I was, I was bucking a trend. Um, and I, I there were some very painful moments of, um, dancers who, who, I remember being invited to the home of a couple for dinner where they then proceeded to tell me all the reasons why I shouldn't be calling squares. One of the most indigestible meals of my life uh, was really 
really kind of painful. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. And, you fun. know, I know it, it comes from a place of people wanting what they think is best for the community. I have to keep reminding myself of that. But all I could say is, you know, you have other choices. You can go to dances and, and not do squares, but I wish you would give it a try. And there's nothing more gratifying than the dancer who comes up and says, you know, I hate squares, but I really like that. <laughs> um, but I got to a point where, you know, if organizers said to me, our dancers don't like squares, um, I would say, well, then don't hire me. <laughs> um, it just, it just was not interesting for me to go off, get on an airplane, travel across the country to call a whole weekend of contras, just not, you know, for, for a few years, that was fine. But then I, I had other needs and there are people who are willing to do that and, and are happy and, and excited to do that. So there's a place for them to do that. Um, but now I think people know, <laughs> know what I want to do and what I'm not willing to do. So I, I gravitate to those places where, where I can just do a mess of things. So so I'm at Ashokan for Northern Week every year, and it's one of my favorite weeks of, of the year because I get to do French singing, French dancing, English country dance calling, playing for English, um, a little bit of contra dance call. It, it's just, I just love the getting to do that variety of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's nice that there that there are those spaces where that can accommodate in both directions, people who really want to stick to contras and and then spaces where there can be more variety. I mean, I I think that's that's often the answer, and it's nice when we can live and let let live about it. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and Nashville is is a community where people are happy to do anything. Really, you know, occasionally I'll I'll get a a grumpy face from someone when I say find a partner for for square. Um, but generally speaking, people will will do whatever you ask them to do. And and it's sort of more about, well, we're all here to have a good time and we'll just dance whatever you want us to. And I love that. I love my dance community. I would not trade the Nashville dance for anything at this point, even though when I walked in those doors and heard the Dobo music 20 something years ago, I thought, I want to be back in Greenfield. <laughs> <laughs> it's OK. I've found my place. Yeah, and it's nice to get to that place of of just knowing what's gonna make a good experience for you as as the caller and as the leader, and because it's that balance between sort of being of service, you know, and offering something and wanting to please a crowd, but but also it's it's also your thing that you're doing, and you want right. you want to have fun too. Yes, yes. Do you think I'm just thinking back to? to your experience and feeling like maybe as a younger caller, people would feel maybe I would use the word a little more entitled to, to, to kind of offer advice or feedback. D did you, when, when you were getting started as a caller, did it impact you at all? The fact that you were on the younger side and also that you were a female caller and, and yeah. what was kind of the landscape in that respect? Yeah, I I think for a while I wrote it off as it's because I'm a woman uh, that people you know tend to be older guys 
who would want to rescue the damsel in distress. I don't know how much it really had to do with gender. I think it was just, I, I didn't have a lot of experience yet. And as I gained experience, that stopped happening. Um, so maybe, I mean, maybe gender factored into it some, because these memories as, as they're flashing in front of me right now is like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing in my mind's eye uh, guys who would come up more so. Mm-hmm. So maybe so. Yeah, I know. And it's, it's a balance between everybody is sometimes new and a beginner at, at something. And um, one of the things I really appreciated in taking Lisa Greenleaf's collar workshop is, is she would talk about um, when and how to sort of offer feedback and, and to think about how you want to receive it and kind of give you some language and tools as a caller to, to maybe set some boundaries uh, around yeah. that or sort of say, you know, thank you very much. Or yes. could you talk to me at the end of the night? You know, yes, I need exactly. to call the next dance mm-hmm. because it is the, it is the tricky thing being the caller. You, you are this major focal point in, in this whole ecosystem uh, yeah. that's happening in the course of, it, of the evening of dance. Yeah, one of my favorite memories is of your, I guess, former housemate, Adina Gordon. Adina Gordon, yes, still, still neighbor, but still neighbor. Oh, that's not great. in the same house. <laughs> well, I remember being somewhere with her and somebody rushing up to the stage to give her feedback. And what she did was she just put her hands straight up and said, stop, or said, not now. I can't remember exactly what it was. And I just thought, that is awesome. That is exactly the thing to do there because the person that is rushing up there is, is not, uh, is not being particularly gracious and storming the stage that way. And you don't have a lot of time to have a conversation with someone as this is, as this is going on. Um, the clock is running and people are impatient and, and, you know, she, she just, she carried on. Everything was fine. Um, it was super clear. I don't know if she talked with them afterwards, but it did. It did offer to me a model, I think, for how to deal with those kinds of situations. And it's okay to be, you know, to use a few, just a few words or a hand gesture. Um, right. Be direct. Be direct. Exactly. Ladies, hey, and the gents push back. Ladies, push back. Gents cross to the other side. Any balance now? Swing. Make a ring of four. You balance there. Spin to the right. New group of four. Balance four. Spin to the right. Long lines forward and back. Ladies, roll your partner. Half hey, ladies, pass. Gents follow. Now the ladies into the middle and hang halfway, and the gents push back, and the ladies push back, gents cross over, balance, partner, swing, swing around. Hands for balance for spin to the right, over spin to a new way. you you call you teach you play for music i think you also write dances 
is that something that's always been been part of your um your practice as a caller yeah and, and it's often born of a desire for a dance that meets a need that other dances haven't filled for me yet um so it may be that I'm envisioning uh, a, a dance evening where I know there's going to be a lot of beginners, and so I need an easy dance for it. Um, in fact, there's an English dance that that I wrote um, called Ransom Note that I never intended to get out into the real world. It was just going to be for uh, it was a one of these 50 forward classes. So you know, essentially for people 50 retirees who were learning English country dancing. And so I needed a really easy progression. I needed to build on some of the basic figures that we'd already covered before. And I wrote this dance and thought very little of it. <laughs> it had its function, but somehow Brad Foster got a hold of it. And now it's been released into the wild and people are calling it all over the place, which is very, still a little bit surprising to me because I just think of it as this kind of throwaway beginner dance. But yeah, I even with contra dancing, I mean, the first contra dance that I wrote was I don't think I'd been calling for a few months at that point. Wow. And it was having seen a figure in another dance that I wanted to put into a dance and make it a little bit easier. Uh, so to use that as the seed around which the rest of the dance, uh, rest of the dance grows. So it comes, I think, from a place for me of being a teacher and wanting to have material that is going to meet a need and then also the, the you know the puzzling out that comes from writing contra dances or or whatever kind of dance that is that that I'm working on but um these days and I know this strays a little bit from a conversation about contra dance calling but um okay yeah so so Rachel Bell is one of these people rare people who writes just countless beautiful tunes and she wrote a tune for me back in 2014, I think it was, or 2015, after visiting me in France. I was living there for the year. And um, she wrote a tune called Voyage de la Diabline. And I wrote a dance called Trip to Provence. And that was our first um, joint dance. And since then, we've written together about almost 14 or 15. And Rachel's going to divorce me if we don't publish a book <laughs> sometime <laughs> soon because we really should. Um, and it's been one of the most fun things. Um, you know, I, my approach for writing dances is I, I hear a tune and there's a piece of it that says to me, this figure has to happen here. And then the rest of it is the puzzle. And you kind of work from there, you know, from the front end, from the back end, uh, hope for a progression, ideally. <laughs> um, but to have it really be respectful of the music, that the music really gives rise to the figures and it's been really fun doing that that's wonderful is Rachel writing the music and you're writing the dance or are you also involved in the tune composing or do they influence each other yeah for the most part it's she writes a tune and says does this suck or is this good <laughs> um, usually it's good and then do you want to write a dance to it um and so so it starts most of the time with the music. There have been a few times where I've said to her, um, can you change this figure? I just or change this, change the end of this phrase where this really needs to build into the start of the B1. But for the most part, I use what she gives me. Um mm -hmm. and what comes out of it. Um 
and I've done, I've done, there's a Dave Weisler dance or a tune that he wrote that I wrote a dance to that um, is one of my dances that I'm most pleased with in terms of how the music and, and dance work together. And um, David Millstone told me he, he taught that dance. It's called Bel Canto. Um, he taught that dance someplace in the last couple of years and Dave was playing for it. And, and he looked over and Dave was sort of teary-eyed which is the greatest compliment of all. Oh. You've made your composer cry. Yes. <laughs> so, so that's that's been really, really fun. Um, and yeah. That, it's another one of those examples of, okay, where do I go from here? This is still connected to dancing, but it's a different thing. It's, you know, puzzle solving and figuring out the co connection between music and, and and dance figures. I love it. Well, I'm excited for that book to come out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, yeah, just, you know, thinking of, of the many different corners you've pushed into, I think I also read that you, you teach at Vanderbilt and mm -hmm. you teach a class that in, involves teaching social dance. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it's an academic course. It's called American Social History Through Dance. And it's referred to as a designated writing course, <laughs> not a designated dancing class, but a designated writing class. So a lot of universities <laughs> have these courses where you spend a lot of time working on student writing. Um, but faculty is free to come up with any any topic that you want in order to teach that material. So for me, you know, I talked before about these two competing and seemingly um different poles in my life between my academic work and my dance life. And this was this great occasion where the two of them have overlapped. I was lucky that at that point in my career, there was uh, the department chair in American studies was someone who knew a lot of my musical friends in town, um, was really interested in um, specifically actually in minstrelsy, um, but in American um, folk music from you know, the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. So we met somewhere and got to talking and I said, you know, I've always had this idea. It'd be really fun to teach a course that would somehow involve uh, social dance. And he said, well, why don't you go ahead and write up a proposal and I'll take it the, to the curriculum committee and, and see what they say. And they came back and they said, yeah, why don't you do this? And here's some, here's some money <laughs> to, to, you know, to do research for, I know it was great. So, um, so I taught, I taught that, oh my goodness, probably over the, a span of about 10 years. And it came at a point in my teaching career where I needed to shake things up, where I felt like I was getting a little bit stale. And here was this class where, um, yeah, we were teaching writing and there were lectures and there were exams and that sort of thing, but there was also dancing, um, and when I first conceived of the class, I, I had a great conversation with Tony Barron about it because he had taught a similar class um, at BU. Um, and he said, like I said, I don't know if I can con convince Vanderbilt students to dance. You know, this isn't this isn't crunchy granola, New England. This is this is a very different place. And he said, they have to dance. You have no choice in the matter. You have to have them dance. <laughs> 
And I was so glad that I listened to him. So, so the, the course um, functions chronologically. So we start essentially with Native American dance and then go all the way through hip hop. Um, and there are five, I guess, five different dance classes that happen during the semester. They happen during the regular class hours. So everybody's there for it. So I have someone who comes in and teaches an African dance class because it's key to understanding all different forms of jazz, jazz dance. Um, I do the square dance class or I bring in a square dance caller um, to do that. Um, somebody does a swing dance class. I have them attend our contra dance. Nice. And, yeah, write, write a response piece to that. Um, and I think there's one other one. And it's an amazing class because where else in you know a traditional college environment are you going to touch your professor or your fellow students so there's a community in that class that I have not experienced in other classes mm-hmm. um, and it's always a real treat to teach that that's so cool yeah yeah I was just curious if there's a you know what it is to kind of study social dance and are you looking at um the ways that dance form reflects society or and vice versa yes definitely um i'm looking over here on my bookshelf trying to find a copy of here it is oh i have a reference it's called swinging the machine by joel dinerstein and it's such a fun book. So he's looking at the, the full title of it is Modernity, Technology, and African-American Culture Between the World Wars. And he's all over the map in this book. So he's not just talking about dance and music, but he talks about art and architecture and um, and factories. And it it's so fun to, to, um, to read his interpretations. Not that I um, buy all of them, but I think it's it's a really fun way to think about um, how dance and music reflect societal changes and how dance and music can actually go the other way and affect society. Um, so this has been a really fun book to consider when thinking about, you know, jazz era dances, but yeah, but you know, this, this course is, it covers so much ground to talk about in the same course, Native American dance and uh, tap dancing and square dancing. I mean, all of those could warrant a course on their own. So it's really meant to be a kind of overview just to give the students something to dip their toes into, but then to get them to think about, okay, how do we get from point A to point Z in the course of the semester? What are the connections between these? Are they completely unrelated? And why is it that we can have this kind of study in a place like the United States? Well, <laughs> for a whole bunch of reasons. So it's um, it's a really fun class to teach. <laughs> yeah, it's, I wish I could take it. <laughs> it yeah, I've had people ask me that before. Like, can you teach it online? I, I wish I could, but Vanderbilt's resistant to that. Mm. Well, we'll definitely we'll have to put the title of that book in, in the show notes if people sure. are curious. Yeah. Um, wonderful. Well, I have a few questions that I always close with. Um, it's been so fun to catch up with you and hear some wonderful stories. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I mean, we touched a little bit on choreography, but 
I'm I'm also interested in how callers are kind of keepers or or you know have to be archivists to a certain extent in terms of um gathering and organizing dance notation. And so I'm curious in your various forms, how do you collect and keep dances? Do you use cards? Are you in a, you know, some kind of device digital setting now with your dance collection? So my my contra dance collection is in a bound book that I update every so often. Um, I found that cards didn't work for me because I would lose them in the middle of the gig. I would forget oh, where I put no. the card down, which is a horrible feeling. So this way, I have to lose the whole book in order to lose my dance. Um, and so it's there was a database that I used and would just enter the different dances and then I would leave pages in between so that I could handwrite new ones in um, and then update it. So it's it's kind of kind of a dinosaur form but it's it's worked pretty well for me um the only time it didn't work well was when i when i left the book of dances on the airplane on the way to a dance weekend and that's terrifying until about a half hour before the gig was going to start <laughs> it's amazing though how much you remember i i was able to the first night was fine and then i had the next morning free and i scrambled and went online and just found a whole bunch of dances uh um so so anyway that's where that's where the country dance stuff resides uh the square dance stuff resides up here in my head so much of it and that is so great and so freeing because for me to be able to learn how to do square dances was to just make it like saying the alphabet yeah that just had to be in there in order to be able to teach the dance as well and to be able to call well um, although I have to every now and then go back and look at um, this collection of dances to remember, oh, huh, there's one I haven't called in 10 years. I should dust that one off again. Um, for my English dances, I've moved everything online and mm -hmm. I have it on Dropbox. Um, and that works really well as long as your device is functioning properly. There's always that. <laughs> there's always that so you know even though I've got my iPad and all this stuff is on there I generally for like English country dance weekends I print everything out and just bring it in paper form as well um, but I do love the ease of being able to you know search for terms that way and I've created a database on Excel so that I'm not constantly recreating the wheel when I'm trying to um, come up with a program so that I can search by key signature or by time signature or by formation. Um, so that's been really handy. So that technology, um, I certainly appreciate. Um, but it is fun to see people like like Sarah, right? Van Nordstrom, doesn't she? She still has cards. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, as do I. Yep, yes. I'm still on cards. So is Adina. Adina's yeah. kind of famous for spreading <laughs> her cards all That's over. Right. And, and I, I kind of do the same thing. I sort of like to be able to physically move them around and arrange them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hope you have a like, do you have a backup copy of your Contra book? Or did you get that one back off the plane? I'm like, that's gonna That's haunting. Yeah, I got it back after the gig, and I had all this stuff on a computer back at home. Good, but, good. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a real lesson about 
about being better organized and less sleep deprived. (laughs) That was one of the, one of the more horrible moments in my calling life. That realization, man, is that a punch in the gut? It was one thing if it's a a one night stand, but it's a whole other thing when it's a dance weekend. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's just travel is hard. It's always hard to keep track of all your things, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, you know, ever, ever adaptable as the caller, but that's, that's, uh, that's a big thing to adapt to. <laughs> yes. And so I, I hear you're not calling as many gigs lately, but so I guess for, for any kind of gig, do you have any kind of pre or post gig rituals or things that you kind of do to, to enter into the space of, of getting on stage and, mm-hmm. and calling and playing and, and then go back and, into the world afterwards a lot of times the pre-dance ritual like if my husband had a dollar for every time I said this he would be rich now so the pre-dance ritual is I don't want to do this (laughs) do you do you have this I do I do and many people do (laughs) judging by asking this question and talking with people it's a funny thing And then you get there and you start and it's like, oh, yeah, I really love this. But it's partly the uh, getting up the energy to get out the door, you know, prepare for it, especially. And for me, my, you know, I'm not I'm not doing this full time. And so it's always been that juggling act where during the academic year, I'm teaching usually Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then I have hop on an airplane and fly someplace and I'm at a dance weekend and I'm having late nights and then I fly home and the next morning I'm back in the classroom. It's just, that's another reason why I'm not doing as much of it is it's just, it's gotten harder as the years have gone by. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's one of the, <laughs> the pre-dance. Right. Ritual. But then, then you have that moment where you're like, oh, this yeah. is why, this is why I came. But yeah, sometimes the space between those <laughs> those two can feel very polarized. Yeah. I, I, when I first started calling, I I spent a lot of time on programming and, uh, and then I felt like I went through a period in my life where I was more into winging it. And now I feel like I've come back to that place of, I want to feel better prepared. Um, one of the great, um, situations I have right now is that our, um, we have a Monday night English dance here in town and you never know who you're going to get. You never know how many people are going to show up. Oftentimes it's kind of small um, and it's to recorded music, which I am not used to. So I'm having to fumble around with my phone and, you know, make sure I've got the right tune and it's at the right tempo. And, but it, it requires so much flexibility and a really profound knowledge of the dances to be able to, okay, we only have four couples. So what four couple dances can I teach now? Um, so that's been, that's been a real lesson for me in, in trying to, you know, make these English dances, just like the square dances that are in my head. Um, there's a lot of them though. <laughs> They're not mm-hmm. all going to fit in. Yeah. But, <laughs> yes. um, at least to have, you know, a, a bunch of them that you just know really, really well and are confident teaching. Um, so the post-dance rituals, uh, it's coming home and uh, and eating nachos and cheese. 
And we thought to us, it's often a fun thing. I <laughs> reward myself after the dance. Um, and, I, you know, I think as the years have gone by, um, I sleep better after gigs than I used to. I, I used to just process and over-process after the gig. And that's not so good for, for sleep. Um, but I wish I had, I should do this now that you, this is good that you're asking me this question to be more thoughtful after the gig about really, um, maybe the next day, even writing down observations about the gig and what worked and what didn't work. And, uh, I almost never do that. And yet I have this crazy file like of all the dances I've ever called where I write out on a piece of paper during the gig, what I've done. Have I ever gone back and looked at those <laughs> as a study of some sort? I've done that for dance weekends, but I've never done it for just regular gigs. That's so great. I love that idea. Yeah. You've mentioned several things too, that like my, I, I work in an organization that has an archive. And so like you just, you just keep mentioning things like you're your tape recordings too, where I'm like, Ooh, those are, should save those <laughs> somewhere, somehow. So, uh, but, and, and I love that, that next level of kind of, again, like archiving, documenting, um, what you did, you know, over time, that'd be super interesting to look at some, someday. And I'm curious why so many of us have a lot of callers, write on the back of their car, if they do have a card, you know, they'll, they'll write when they call the dance. And there seems to be some overlap there with, with callers kind of wanting to, to notate and, and kind of track things in different ways. So Ted Sanilla was the master of that. Uh, I remember him talking about how he would not only, you know, the more obvious things that you would notate, but he would write down the band and the tune that they played for a dance. So that if you worked with them again, if you really like something, you can suggest it. And and I think that's a way to endear yourself to the band. <laughs> yeah. Sounds. Yeah. Just to notice and appreciate. Absolutely. Um, well, my last question is my my own little bit of research or just curiosity that I've been asking everyone who comes on if if you know whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. Uh, I'm going to give a wishy-washy answer. <laughs> Both. Yeah. You know, I, for one, I'm a twin. So I That's think there's right. that desire to always be with someone. And that's certainly been the pattern in my life where even in relationships, there's very little gap in between them <laughs> um, that I feel like I need to have a partner. Um, and yet big crowd situations, I find. I find difficult um, when they work well, it's amazing. <laughs> and it is like we've been talking about all the things that a, that a caller has to do in order to make an evening work is, is that challenge. And it always feels to me, it's like I've never surfed, but I find myself thinking that it must be like surfing where you're up on your surfboard and all of a sudden here comes a wave and are you going to be able to stay upright? And if you don't, how do you get back on top of the surfboard again? Um, and that I think it can be really challenging. Um, I find that oftentimes at the end of a dance week, 
you know, like you go in, if you go into a Shokan or a CDSS camp and, and, and you know, you're going to be there for the week and you're thinking, okay, so I have six times here, I have 18 meals this week and I want to try to sit with different people and get to know people. And there's this person I've seen for years, but I've never talked to them and I'm, I want to, and then the week rolls around and you realize you've maybe had a meal with three of those people. And why does that happen? It happens because you just need to get away and you need to recharge your batteries or you just need to be with a couple of friends um, in order to be able to uh, have that energy to do the good work that you have to do while you're at the camp. Um, so it's hard. So how's that for a wishy-washy? I don't think it's wishy-washy at all. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I, I really, I feel like you can, I think it's pretty widely accepted that you know, that that's also a range. The introvert extrovert thing is, is not really, I should, I should ask the question in a different way, uh, to imply that it's not necessarily an either or, but I just find it interesting that, you know, as people who put themselves in, in a position of being kind of at the center of what can be a, yeah, usually a, a, a pretty big group of people, you know, center of a lot of different colliding energies and inputs and you know and it's interesting I mean the answers are are varied I I haven't done like a tally yet I'm not that scientific but I thought you were going to say to find yourself at the center of the crosshairs and I went immediately to that to that (laughs) image because because let's face it it does feel that way sometimes yes where you feel like you're the logical person to nowadays be attacked either because you're using gendered or non-gendered language, uh, whatever the issue happens to be. And I think it's one of the reasons why I've been loving playing music for so, so much lately, because it feels like you're in this little pod with you and your, your two musicians and it's safe. It's safe back there. (laughs) Um, And especially with something like English where you don't have to come up with tunes. You just play what they tell you to play. Right. It's like this glorious world to inhabit when you're back there. It um, sounds so lovely. And I've also gotten to be on the dance floor when you're playing and I, and I love it. And uh, I, I'm excited to see what other areas you reach you you continue to reach into it I just think it's amazing you know the just hearing a little bit about uh, the different ways that you've kind of shifted focus and explored and and discovered new things um we didn't even get to delve into French dancing too much too whether that's that's a um a love that I share too so Susan thank you so much for for sharing all of that (laughs) it's fun to talk about it's fun to it's fun to see you after way too long. Don't even have to way have too that. long. When was it? It was a while ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, thanks so much. And um and keep keep doing what you're doing. It's amazing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mary. Thanks so much to Susan for talking with me. You can check out the show notes for today's episode at cdss.org podcasts. This project is supported by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society, and is produced by Ben Williams and me, Mary Wesley. 
thanks to Great Meadow Music for the use of tunes from the album Old New England by Bob McQuillan, Jane Orzachowski, and Deanna Stiles. Visit cdss.org podcasts for more info. Happy dancing! The views expressed in this podcast are of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect those of CDSS.